Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Amen. This is God's word. All right, family. Um, chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians. Thank you, Bernadette, sis. I, as she was reading, I was like, man, we could just read those verses and just, as you were reading, like, just read them slowly. And as you were just sharing, I'm thinking, like, that in itself was a sermon. Uh, just ministering. If you, when we think of hope, when we think of the reality of judgment, when we think of uh, those being under the umbrella of the reality of Jesus Christ, um, I, I just hope that you just, we just didn't fly past, past those verses as she was reading those verses in chapter 5, family. Um, because what those verses really share is, is why are you different, right? Why are we different as a people of God? Um, and we have the young people here today, and I, and I don't want us to miss this, young people, because... Um, you know, your life of perseverance is very important. What we mean by that is that the world is going to try all throughout your life to get you to derail in some way your faith. Just like all of your mommy and daddies and myself, every day uh, the world tries to entice us to say that there's something greater, there's something better, uh, there's something more desirable than your relationship with Jesus. And so it's a fight of faith. This is not a sprint. But it really is a marathon for us day in and day out uh, to be able to say no to the lies of the world and say yes to righteousness and the things of God. And so the question you have to ask yourself, as all of us, if we're, if we're honest, we all struggle with how do you fight the fight well? How do you keep running faithfully? Right? How do you continue to trust God? Just like the first day when you, you know that first day when you like God just revealed himself. 
You know, and, and all of a sudden you're like, man, like, I mean, I remember when I first got saved, man, I didn't want to step on an ant, you know? I was just so like, oh my goodness, like, like the love of the Father was so, it was just new to me, and I had done religious stuff my whole life. See, a lot of us have been religious, but when God grabs a hold of you, man, I was like, wait a minute, so, so I'm united with Jesus, not because I've done this good thing, but because of his blood on the cross, because of him saving me, and it, it changed my life. And I'm like, how do I, that fervor, how do you keep that fervor? Why are you different? I want to propose you're different because of hope, right? Hope. And what, what and hear this, what you believe about your future, because that's what hope is, is, like, is, is knowing that, that, that the Christian, the difference between us and the unbeliever is that we have a future, I propose the Bible, the, the mode of operation in the scripture, and that's why he talks about the Christian and he talks about the others a lot in the scripture. He's called them earth dwellers in Revelation. Because the Christian, you actually have a future. And as it were, the unbeliever, those who have not trusted Christ, you have no future because as it were, you are going to be destroyed. But being being destroyed, that's the reality of the fate of man without Christ. It reminds me of, um, so when you think of that, you know, what you believe about the future really should shape how you live. As we get into this text here, it reminds me of uh, kids, you know, when I, we all do this every day. I mean, you have so many moments in your life where when you are doing something, basically, you know, like, if I do this, it affects this. For example, our kids, like, they don't, they need to clean their room, right? Now, sometimes they don't want to clean their room. But, you know, actually, like for example, uh, the other day, uh, where were we going to go? We were going to go somewhere. I forget where it was, the DAC or something. No, we were going to go. But all of a sudden, they just had to feel the spirit. And they wanted to go. They wanted to clean their room, you know, and, and get it really nice and hook it up, right? And, and, I, and I, I wonder, I, I may be wrong, I wonder if knowing that there was something in the future that was going to be really good, motivated them to do a certain work now. I wonder if we are, we are like that, if we do that every day. I start there because I want us, as we pray right now, I want you to be thinking about your future. Be thinking, how do you view your future? And here, how does it affect how you live today? Okay? Think about that because that's where this, these verses are going. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, would you empower us to be just encouraged as the scriptures desire. Allow us to see you for who you are. Allow us to exalt you for who you are. We pray that Christ, you would be our all in all. Make the scriptures true uh, in our hearts and real. And, and Lord, just give us revelation. I pray, Lord, would you allow me to get out of the way so that you can be worshiped. Uh, use me as your servant by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we were talking encouragement, right? That's basically, I would propose that the end of uh, chapter four is all about encouragement, right? That people were kind of trying to just understand, like, why they were losing uh, loved ones. Uh, and basically, he was, oh, can I give a brief commercial, too? It's a great job, uh, Alvin. I just want to add briefly to that, because there's one thing I want us to understand about hope. Uh, so people were in, being encouraged because there, people were dying, and they was wondering, so what happens when these people die? I thought Jesus was coming back, and so there was a struggle here. And a lot of times, uh, people think, as a Christian, if you want to be a real super Christian, and this is for free, I just was thinking about this, if you want to be a super Christian, when people die, or when there is grief, 
or when there's pain in your life, sometimes there is a, a theology where if you're serious about Jesus, then you shouldn't grieve. If you're really serious, you should pull yourself up. You know, don't cry. And so we've even done things that I propose are not theologically responsible. We'll have a funeral, and then we'll make it a party. And you go, you might have been to some of those and think, why are you dogging people who make it a party? Here's why, because I think there's something theologically that we're missing when we don't grieve. That text isn't saying don't grieve. It's saying don't grieve like those who don't have hope. What he's really saying, he's saying you don't have, as Christians, hopeless grief, right? But your grief, as it were, is grief, but it's hopeful grief. And that's why even when, uh, when, when, when Alvin, Elder Alvin brought up the text of, of individuals dying and he talked about Jesus weeping, think about that. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. Why does he weep? Why? You, you know why he wept? He goes and, he's, and it says that he goes to Mary and he, he's just, it says that he was angry in the scriptures. Why? Because what death does, and it, should, it did it for Jesus, is that death reminds us and it shows us that, man, this world isn't complete yet. That God hasn't fully redeemed everything. We weren't made to die. It's unnatural. We were made to live and be stronger and grow and, and enjoy each other. We were made for, uh, for that, that, that continual uptick, not the downtick, right? right? You know how you, you're 10 and you grow up and you get stronger and stronger, and you, then you can dunk? And, well, I could. <laughs> but, um, and then you get kind of 30, and all of a sudden you don't have the same hops, and then you're 41, and all of a sudden your knee hurt for no reason, right? And that's a true story. It's knee hurting. Well... That's what happens with us, right, because of the fall. But that wasn't, that, wasn't the, that wasn't the desire. And so he weeps and he's sad because he's like, it's not supposed to be like this. So may I just propose to you, if you go to a funeral or anything, I want to propose to you, or if you're hurting right now, grief is okay. It actually exalts God because you're telling God that you agree with him that this world is broken and he needs to fix it. You're agreeing. So don't think that we're being more spiritual or you're not, you don't have faith when you're just like, man, I'm hurting right now. Something happened to me, I'm hurting. You know? My relationship's broken, I'm hurting. Someone's died. It's unnatural, it hurts. So he's telling them, you, you don't have hopeless grief. And he's trying to comfort them in the later verses of chapter 4. And then in chapter 5 here, where we're at now, the intent is to challenge believers to live faithfully and expectantly, right, in anticipation of that future judgment, that future event. So now we're moving from this, this encouragement to actually propose judgment. Judgment, right? And he's focused on the fact of, of, of not just uh, judgment, but preparedness. And he wants us to understand that the concern here in this text here is non-preparedness. Now, one thing he makes it clear in the text as we jump in is that, you know, people want to know, like, when, when is Jesus coming back? I need to know. I want to know. What are the signs? One thing we learn from this text is that we can't know. All right? I would propose, if anyone in this room, if you hear someone tell you to start looking for a calendar or to figure this out, they're foolish. Right? That's not true. That's not what's happening. He says, now concerning, you say, well, why, why does he say this in verse 1? Now concerning the times and the seasons. 
Brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. You see that in the verses? So if you pull up your Bibles, or it should be here up on the screen, a verse, the first verse. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. So he's been encouraging them, encouraging them, telling them who he is. And then we get into chapter four and he's encouraging them. And he's saying, hey, I know that people are dying, but just understand something uh, that you don't have to grieve like people uh, of the world because you have this hope. And guess what? Also, you need to understand that there is a, there is a reality that's coming. There is a judgment that's coming. He's trying to give a reminder in verse 1. Let me remind you. And here's the reminder. It's not to give you a certain time. It's to, it's to tell you about a certain future that Christ is really going to return, right? And that the unbeliever will falter. And his point here in verse 1, family, don't miss this. His point is that uh, this is a surprise, this returns a surprise, but it's not a surprise for Christians, okay? That in fact, your durability as a believer, our durability, the way that we keep on keeping on is because of this hope, this hope that we have. And so he goes on to verse 2 to explain that a little more. He says, look, you don't need me to, to uh, you have no need to have anything written to you. We've talked about this before, verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, so he says, let me do some, let me get specifics about the date here. All right, and he does that by giving a few analogies. First, he talks about this sense of, uh, before we get into analogies, the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, when you see that in the scriptures family, usually it's talking about judgment, um, and uh, in the same sense, in basically judgment for the unbeliever, deliverance for those who are believers, who validate themselves as Christ's people. And I gave you a few verses to, um, to write down as addresses as well. You can do that. Uh, and his point is this. Um, when you think of a thief, right, surprise um, is, is the essence here is what he's talking about. And he's saying that, that what Jesus does is he plans secretly and he acts suddenly. Think about a thief. I love he uses the term thief because uh, <laughs> how many thieves do you know that say, hey, uh, Scott, so look, um, kind of struggling today, probably about 817, 830, I don't know, we'll figure it out, but I'm going to rob you, okay, and Joanne. Love y'all. <laughs> right? Who, when, have you, when have you seen a thief give the time and framework of when they're going to, to come and react and come and, and take what you have? Right. When do you feel like you know that that's going to happen? When have you been like, oh, yeah, I knew they were going to take my TV? No. His point is a sense of the suddenness of that no one knows, like that is secret. That the thief, you know, the thief is usually planning. I, I mean, usually thieves are, have thought about this stuff, right? They're, they're kind of thinking through where they should go, what house is most vulnerable, right? Usually you don't have impromptu thieves, right, who are about to go to Pingry to play ball and then they stop and steal something real quick, right? That doesn't happen. They're usually planned out. And so Christ's point here through Paul is that Christ's coming will kind of be like that. It will have these characteristics of, of a thief where, where basically you, you don't know what's happening and all of a sudden, boom, there he is. It's sudden. It was secretly planned. It's right before you. But he says in verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. 
and they will not escape. And so he gives these two analogies. The first is a thief, that there's a suddenness. Christ is going to come, and all of us are going to be like, whoa. But his point here is that we're not going to be, we shouldn't be like, whoa, I didn't know it was going to happen. <laughs> or, or, whoa, man, I got to get myself together. We should have a sense of hope and joy. But it will, it will be surprising. And he gives this other piece. And what he does here is, again, he's focusing in on a judgment point. As he's saying, when Christ returned people, the people of God, he's saying it's going to be sudden for everybody. But he says, you know, there are people who are walking around, and they think because they haven't seen this happen, uh, that, man, this is not going to happen. And this is where he wants to, he's probably trying to kind of, like, you know, prod us and just remind us, don't think like these people. Because that's the thing. Satan tries to get you and I in that part of the narrative where you're going, well, okay, man, it's been a couple thousand years. Is he really going to return? Right? And so for young people, you will be thinking this. Like as if, as if like Christ died 10 years ago and he should be returning soon. We don't know when he's coming. But what he says, he says, don't lull yourself like people who get caught up in the things of the earth and say, you know what? I'm kind of comfortable here. I'm kind of enjoying life here. You know, I don't think he's going to return. I don't know much about this. And what he does, he uses to, to combat that, he uses this second analogy of labor pains. Now, I love that because if I can just mention my beautiful wife, the funniest thing about when we had our, when we had our kids, Sarah was, like, was excited about the kids, but the one thing that every woman has to deal with, and I can't even imagine is when you get pregnant, and, I, and, and, and Milana, don't beat me up for this, but when you get pregnant, the thing that I, I'm always blown away is that no matter now, whatever, that baby has to come out. Right? I think that's, that's where the rubber meets the road for all the ladies. And so Sarah, I remember she was excited about the pregnancy, but I remember every, I remember the first, for sure the first three or four kids, she would come up to me like at week 35 and be like, this thing has to come out of me. And she was just, just kind of like, oh, my goodness. This, just the inevitability of pregnancy is that the baby will be born, right? His point there is to bring something that is so clear in culture and say, hey, just like when you're pregnant, the baby will be coming. In the same way, do not doubt the fact that the Lord Jesus will be returning. It will happen. That's his point there. So he uses, I see you guys, that was a drastic example. No, the Bible gave it, okay? All right? So that, that, the Bible did that. And the Bible said, look, I want, you to, I want you to think about that. Think about that reality. And that's what Jesus is promised. And so people who, who you know, live in ignorance and kind of try to say, well, I don't really know what's going to happen and kind of live in re religious rebellion to the Lord. He's trying to remind you of me. He's trying to remind these people in Thessalonica that do not be discouraged. God will judge them. He will judge all people who are not in Christ. And so he talks about this inevitability here. He goes on in the scriptures. that This is God's, I propose to you when he says, but you are not in darkness in verse 4, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. He's saying, hey, but this is not your, your journey. He's saying you will not have to deal with that reality of the judgment. 
But I will propose to you what he's trying to encourage us is that people walk around this world as if God does not exist, as if they are autonomous. And he says, I'm proposing, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, as much as the world wants to run around you and act like you are the dumb one, everyone will be held accountable. That people can't just remain foul forever is his point. Is that he will deal with all this stuff. And that's supposed to be an encouragement for those who love Jesus. He will do something about evil. I always tell you guys, you know, when you ever get into those arguments about the problem of evil, you always, why, I, we should never falter because we don't have the problem. Every person, all his, whenever I have that discussion with any unbeliever, I look at him and I go, why are you acting like the burden of proof is on me as a Christian to have the problem? Because we have the only religion, praise God, because it's actually real, where Jesus rose from the dead and said, I actually not only did something about the problem of evil, but I'm going to do something about the problem of evil. No other religion in all of history, especially those who don't believe in God, does anything about the problem of evil. If you're not a Christian, evil is just evil, and it gets away with it, and it's just there. I'm like, actually, you have the problem when dealing with the issue of evil. Because my God takes care of it. He will one day. How you live. So you see what he's doing here? He's saying, hey, there's this hope of future. There's this future glory. There's this future grace that he's given. There's those who know Jesus Christ that God is saying, I'm protecting you. I'm leading you on. But then there's those who go and they mock God and say, I don't see God. I mean, you guys are in here in this building. There's this invisible guy you're worshiping. You've got these words on the screen. You're singing. This is weird. I'm going to go and have my spoils and do whatever I want to do and live my life and be my God. And God says, one day those people will be held accountable. That there is an end to evil and foulness. And so he says in verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. See, what you believe in what's going to happen, guys, does dictate what you do today. What he's saying here, guys, he's saying, I'm trying to remind you. Think about what he's been doing with the Thessalonians, right? Continually reminding them about who they are. This verse 4 is an identity verse, right? He said, I want to remind you of who you are. That's not you. You don't live like that. Don't start living like that. You don't have to live like that, right? This day shouldn't surprise you like a thief, because who you are should determine, basically, based on your future. You say, man, this is how I'm going to live today. His point is that you have an identity in Christ. Only the unprepared are surprised by the unexpected. Right? Think about that. Um, I don't know, young people, you guys probably have had this. Maybe now I'll explain it. So there's quizzes. I mean, young people, you had a quiz yet? Have you ever had a quiz? I know, I know there's a quiz is when you go into your school and all of a sudden you get tested without knowing that you're going to be tested. So you walk in there and the teacher says, you have some teachers who say, hey, so Monday you're going to have a quiz. So you get prepared for that, you know. So it's like a mini test. But a real quiz is when they don't tell you. All right? But the, the teacher tells you in the beginning, just like Jesus, I'm coming back. The teacher says, you're going to have a quiz someday. Right? So you go through school, and you're hanging out, and you take a test here, and, you, and you're thinking, man, we haven't had a quiz yet. Maybe, they, maybe she forgot. Maybe we're not going to have a quiz. Maybe he forgot. Right? Maybe some of us are testifying right now. Yeah, that was me. Right? right? And, and you know what I know? You know what's interesting? If you've been studying, if you've been preparing, like, like, no, like, like you're not as fearful about the quiz, right? 
In fact, can I even propose for a lot of us, I know it was my journey, there was a guy named Greg in, at Miami of Ohio that I went to school with, we would have these contests because we love, we're kind of nerd, we love books, we love studying. And so we were like, man, we hope we have a quiz. And so some people, people who study, they want a quiz because what it does is separates you from the rest of the people. Right? It says, yeah, those cats who ain't studying, they got exposed, but I've been studying. So I want the teacher to know I'm, I'm, I'm on it. I'm ready. I don't know about these cats, but, I, but I'm doing this, right? That's, that, that's what happens, right? The, the, the quiz separates the class at some level. And so in the same way, people who hate quizzes is because maybe you're not prepared. And what he's doing here, he's saying, hey, you, this shouldn't surprise you. You should be ready, desiring, hopeful for the quiz. You should be hopeful for Christ's return because of who you are in Jesus Christ. He goes on, as a Christian, he said, I want you to be ready. For you, verse 5, you again, encouraging, verse, encouraging, for you are all children of light. Why should you be different? Because you're children of light. You're children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. You see that, guys? Verse 5, we're not of the night. He says, uh, this kind of people in the image of, he gives a sense of blindness. The children of the night, when he says this night piece is night versus day, is, 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 is kind of depiction of people who have either spiritual blindness or ignorance of people who, are, who, can't, who can't see. And so therefore, it's kind of like they're living in darkness. He says, that's not you uh, because God has revealed to you, right? He's, he's, he's birthed your eyes. So now you can see, you can see God's world and what he wants you to be about. And what this should do for you and me, family, this should kind of build, like, this builds encouragement to understand our destiny versus the world, but it also should build a sense of, of passion and excitement and fervor to preach the gospel. You know, I hear people a lot of times, you know, I'll, I'll talk with other Christians, fam, and, and, and say we're with our unbeliever friends or unbelieving family, and they'll do something kind of crazy, and we'll kind of make a joke like, man, yeah, could you pray for them because they need Jesus, Right? And a lot of times, have you ever heard that? Have you ever used that term? Have you ever said that? Have you ever heard that said to you? And a lot of times when we say stuff like that, we're joking, um, but we're really kind of thinking of the reforming of a moral code, right? We're thinking, oh, this person's doing something bad, so they need Jesus so they can do something good, right? But see, see, I we minimize the reality of no why they really need Jesus. The Bible's saying they need Jesus because without Christ, they will be destroyed. That people, this, this, these, are, these are judgment verses, He's telling you and me that, guess what? There is two plights of man. There's men who will be continually destroyed, and there's men who will experience eternal life. And that you and I have an opportunity to preach the good news, to model the good news, to show people the hope that we have within us so people will move from this identification and now be those who love Christ. These are judgment verses here. So I even propose when we think like that, I pray that we would change our thinking and know, like, no, there's, a, there's an urgency here. There's a sense of like, no, these people won't have Christ. They won't have life. So I don't want my uncle to just need Jesus so he can stop drinking or doing something that's morally efficient. I want him to know Jesus so he can be saved from his sin. And he says, hey, you guys are children of the light, children of the day. We're not children of the darkness. He reframes it again in verse 6, family. Look at verse 6. So then, if that's the case, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. 
You see that? He's saying, hey, if this is true, remember what I just remember hope, hope, hope. If this is true, if I'm chosen of the light, not of darkness, if it's true of the destiny that God has proposed, that he's being very clear, he said, man, this is this is as real. You know how we say, put that on everything. You say, man, this is 100. You know, we, you know what I'm saying? He's like, look, I'm telling y'all, just like I said, pregnancy or like a thief, like this is going to occur. If all that's true, how are we living? Right? That's verse 6. How are you living then? He says, so then let us not sleep. And guess what? Notice in the verses, when you go back on your own, look at the verses. Look how many imperatives there are. These are all commands. I can't even start on that. These are all commands, right? Let us not sleep, but keep awake, (laughs) be sober, right? These are suggestions of happy life. He's saying, this is the things that we are to be about. He exhorts us, right? Who Burglar in your house, he says, look, you the burglars in your house and you sleeping while he's walking around, guess what's going to happen when you wake up? He says, no, keep awake. Be sober, clear-headed, clear-minded. You, you wonder, well, why do, you know, maybe, why, do we, why shouldn't we get drunk, you know? Why is it, we can drink, right? We can drink, but why not get drunk? This is one of the reasons here, if I can just give a little theological tidbit, right? It's because anything in your life, Drinking, drugs, the allure of of sex, whatever, whatever takes your mind, specifically drugs that kind of not allows you to think clearly, God is like, I want you to chop it out of your life because I need you to have a clear mind so that you can clearly worship. So one of the main reasons why God is like, hey, we don't, we don't, we don't pollute ourselves because we're on, we're on mission, God has said, you have a specific, there's a mission here. We, we're serious about what's happening. We know we have a glorious future, so therefore, we live a different way. That's why we live a different way, because we have a glorious future. I was thinking about um, people who does, who does this, do, who've done this in history really well, who live in controlled fashion. Even Jonathan Edwards uh, it, it talked about how he would, when he would read and be and studying, he's a pastor, theologian, that he would think about what he was eating, his diet. And he would kind of be, he would tell his wife, like, no, sweetheart, like, I don't, no junk food, because I needed a little more energy to study the Bible. So he would talk about eating um, lettuce, and he would give, he would give forth like a, 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 a extreme diet. But what, what, now, what blew me away about it was the, 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 the fervor. And the intentionality of like, you know what? I'm not going to eat M&Ms and chips because that just takes my energy away. And guess what? I want to be energized because I want to enjoy Christ and I want to help people enjoy Christ. And so to give me more energy to eat these kind of foods, which allows me to write more, so let me eat these kind of foods. Do we think like that? Do you look at your diet? Do you look at your sleep rhythms and say, what's going to allow me to maximize God's glory tomorrow? What's going to allow me to be awake and sober where I'm not just slothing and now because I was up watching, you know, this TV show all night now, I, don't want to, I can't read the Bible, I can't read the Word, so I'm just going to hurry up and get dressed real quick. And See, that, God's like, no. He's like, no, this is, we got to be awake. We got to, we want to be, we, we're different. The unbelievers should see us and go, man, your whole life, your life is just, is this interesting how you've girded the way you do life to care for other people and to exalt Christ? It's so interesting. Tell me more about this. See, now you got a gospel opportunity. The world doesn't think like that. What is the world? What, why, why would the world change their diet to just glorify themselves so I can look better? Right? Diet has no, it has no God-centric motive. 
All about how can I look better and try to prolong my life as if we're going to live forever. And that's all, this whole plight of the world is I, I got to figure out, because one day I'm going to die, and so we're all nervous, right? And so how do I eat more broccoli, and what can I do now to kind of prolong, give me another, another 10 months or another two years? No, no matter how much broccoli you eat, you will die, right? And so the only difference, I'm not, I eat broccoli, now please try to stay alive, right? Don't just go out and, right? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Well, pastor told me, just say, hey, hey, let me die anyway. You know, the triple cheese omelet, you know. So, you know, quiet times are interesting. You know, quiet times, so you think of him, the, the lettuce, right? You think of, why do we do quiet times? For young people, you've heard of quiet times. Have you heard of that term, quiet times? You know what that is? Quiet times is a, is a traditional term. It's not theologically astute. It's a traditional term that the people of God, evangelicals in the last uh, couple hundred years, or I'll say even the last, 20, the last century, have coined to talk about spending time with God, reading the Bible, praying, uh, just connecting with God. Think about that, though. It's a tradition, but man, there's some theologically rich there, right? There's some theologically rich, Megan, because what, what are we trying to do? What, what are we saying when we give the, the first moments of our morning and we, and we get on our knees and we start praying and, and asking God to, Lord, I know this world is going to walk out here right now. And the world's going to say, oh, value this, love this, point at this, focus on this. Before all that happens, let me just pause and say, no, Lord, this is your world. And I'm not going to look at what the world's telling me. And I'm going to pause and I'm going I'm to remind myself what God says. Here's what God says about his world. Here's what he says about me in his world. Here's what he says about the world in general. And we kind of calibrate ourselves. And then we pray for the world. And we pray for our friends. And we ask, Lord, would you bless them? Will they, will they be getting up right now and just enjoying Christ? And we, and we kind of prepare ourselves. And then we read the Bible. And, and then God is continually helping us. Know, oh, so this, what, this is the plight of man. This is my journey. This is what God wants me to be about. You see why quiet times are important? Do you see why Satan battles you every day not to have one? You see it now? Do you see the battle? You thought you just were busy. No, it's a spiritual battle. For you not to graft yourself in Jesus so that you can live and maximize his glory in his world. It's a battle. He says, don't sleep, but keep awake. Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. You know, I love how the scriptures are so... Just, just real, just kind of street. I mean, you know how it is. Man, ain't nothing going on. Ain't nothing happening good at midnight. You know what I'm saying? When you're out 1.30 in the morning, you know you ain't doing nothing godly. Come on. He's like, cat, you should be asleep, getting ready to worship God tomorrow. Right? Now, I want to be legalistic. If you're up at 1.30, don't think Jesus is mad at you and, dead, and Pastor Eric saying you're in sin. It's not true. I want no emails. What I'm saying... What I'm saying is Bible just giving a general, just a general periphery of like, you know what? Hey, just in general, you know what? It's like, guys, you have people who are kind of slumber and people who are rested and ready to go. And he's like, this is what happens in culture. We know that's true. Night times for sleeping and evil people <laughs> in the sense of like just doing their thing. He says, we're daytime people. You hear me? We're daytime people. Right? And that's what Paul does. I love how Paul makes the street light in, in, in Acts, in the beginning of Acts, the whole point. His theological premise is, is, is the time of day. They're like, hey, you, you're speaking in tongues. You're doing all these supernatural things. You must be drunk. His premise wasn't, he didn't go into the theology of, of tongues. He said, hey, dr- drunk? 
It's nine in the morning. Too early to get drunk. That was his theory. That's his theology, y'all. That's Paul's theology in that mind. Read Acts. That's what he says. He says, too early in the morning to get drunk. People ain't drunk nine in the morning. It must be something else, right? Point being, he says, we're daytime people. He's making an analogy about who are you as a people of God. We're people who are rested and ready and who are focused about the mission. That's what he wants us to be about. We keep awake and our, prep, our preparedness, guys, shows our, our priorities. How prepared are you and me? Verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober again. Another command, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet of the hope, helmet, the hope of salvation. Look at this. This comes from, you know, what I'm not going to do, and, I, and, and everything in me wants to do this as a preacher, is I want to take those words and kind of show you what the breastplate does and how it's defending this. I don't know if this text is doing that, family, so I'm not going to do that. What I propose to you is he's taking this from Isaiah 59. So what I want to do as a people of God is read Isaiah 59 together. Um, and it, Can you put it up there? And it says, Justice is turned back. And righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares. This is uh, Isaiah talking about what, what's going to be happening uh, in the eschaton. And uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a, a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. You see that? He says, there's evil people doing evil things. He says, y'all are so jacked up. What I'll do is I'll save you. Right. Verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Sounds familiar? Verse 18. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So this is Jesus saying, guess what? I saw the plight of man, and what I did, I became the, his, basically his warrior. I became the warrior for man to take on a payment of sin, but also to fight for the people of God. And as it were, Jesus does through Paul. He's saying, guess what? We get to retell that story. Is that we get to gird ourselves up. The, 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 the focus again, family, is not to focus on the specific things, but preparedness. He's asking you and me to be passionate about being prepared. To be prepared about what does it mean to walk and love God. And if I even say, this is a past participle, so what, what it means is he's saying this is what it means to be a Christian, and that actually these things that he's talking about here, we don't get, he's given them to us. We live differently, prepared to do the job that God has called us to do in his world. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live in him. We live anticipating a future salvation. We live anticipating what God has done. He says, you have not been destined. You're not destined for wrath. He's reminding his destined like you're not destined for that. But, but Jesus died for you. But notice this. This is interesting. When you see what he says, are awake or asleep, we might live with him. I, sh- I wrestled with this passage. I was like, what is he talking about here? Because when I just read through it, I thought, and don't miss this so we can go home after this. I thought he was saying, whether we are alive or dead, we might live with him. Guys, I don't think that's what he's saying. Though you thought? I don't think that's what he's saying. 
you guys can check this out. And I checked this out with some other theologians too, just to see if I was crazy. What was interesting, it would be interesting that he would do a couple of things. First, that he would use different, he would use different verb tenses um, when talking about being asleep. First, that was interesting. Then when he talked about that in the past, when he was talking about those who are dead. So I thought that was interesting. But sometimes in antiquity, they do that. You can change the verb tense and still have the same context. But what was interesting to me is that it's a different context. Is that it's interesting that an author would talk about being asleep in the context of being dead. And then, through this whole passage, he's been talking about sleep in a sense of slothness or unpreparedness or just not being who you're you're supposed to be. Sleep in a sense of just kind of, you know, not not being girded and, and that he would all of a sudden, in the same context, change it to be dead, meaning dead. You follow me? Here, here's what I think he's saying here, which, you know, in my, I, I believe exalts Christ. Is that he's saying the confidence in the future rescuing of Jesus, right, is not wishful thinking, uh, that Jesus has done it all. And one of the ways we can see that is that he died for you, whether if you are, as it were, doing all that God has asked you to do, or whether you kind of waning, you know, you, you don't have the vigilance that you're supposed to have in Christ. You're, you're having a bad day, as it were. So whether you're this awesome Christian or someone, that man who's really struggling at this stage, that actually God died for you and will actually bring you home with him. You know, I thought about it. I didn't let pragmatism gird my theology, but then I thought about that. If that's true, and I thought about our lives, I was like, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Because when I look at our lives, you know, sometimes we're having good times in the Lord. You're having a month where you're in the Word. You're sensing God's presence. You feel like you're just hearing God guide you. And you're seeing this God just manifest himself powerfully. And then you have months where you don't even read the Bible. You know, where, you, where you're sinning. Where there's strongholds in your life. And you're like, Lord, man, I've been a Christian too long to be struggling in such a dramatic way. And then you meet with a brother or sister, and God girds you back, and then you, you share your faith, or something happens where God is gracious to say, let me just, boom, make sure that he revives this brother or sister. And then you're enjoying God, and then next thing you know, you have an argument with your wife or your husband or your friend even, and man, you can't even talk to them without being angry and being hurtful. And that happens for months. And you're like, Man. And what's interesting in our journey is that we have this crazy ebb and flow. And you know what's interesting? Sometimes I ask myself, I wonder which stage in my ebb and flow will Jesus come back? Right? Because in the flesh, I'm so dumb to think that he's going to like me more if he comes back while I'm sharing my faith. Oh, hey, Jesus. (laughs) Right? Or... You know, right during the end time of our discipleship time, and in Jesus' name, oh, hi, Jesus. I was just doing Bible study. Right? Don't worry about me. Get those people. Right? Right? Or, but we never think about right in the middle of totally gossiping and wanting to demean somebody and plotting evil 
or cheating somebody out of something that you put on Craigslist and knowing that you shouldn't have the value as much, but you're just trying to make money because, man, that's been your struggle. Or sadly, you're not being faithful to those in your life or your spouse. And you find yourself wondering, man, will he come then? What would he think about me then? Do you see the, the ridiculous, horrible, stupid tunnel vision as if God is thinking about your one work? You see that? I wonder if this is right on. Guess what? This is a heart thing. Jesus birthed us, and the scripture says he will take us and complete us until the day of redemption. And guess what? Whether you go in and you're on his back and he's like, hey, or he is dragging you because you broke both of your legs spiritually, you're coming home with him. And that doesn't, what that should do, though, here's the thing. See, if you're thinking this way, maybe you're not a Christian. If you're thinking, oh, cool, then I guess I don't have to really pursue and be all that God wants me to be. You're probably not a believer and you missed the whole sermon. Because look at the last verse. He says that, and I'm telling you, that's what he's saying theologically. It's whether you think you are an all-star, which you're not, or whether if you're struggling, which we all are, he's saying, I'm the one who's taking you home. I'll do it. And guess what that should do? Look at the last verse. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. He's saying, because that's the reality. Because Christ is our all in all. He says, therefore, you can encourage each other. You can spur each other on toward loving good deeds. You can continue to fight the fight, understanding you don't have the destiny of judgment. You have the destiny of eternal life with your Savior. Encourage each other. He said, what's the application, Eric? The application is verse 11. He says, encourage each other. Build each other up. Be passionate about who we are in Christ and who you are in Christ and make sure that we're pointing people to Jesus as you already are doing. 